Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Past nine, you're tuned to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name is Bron Burton. And my name's Cade Mills. How are you, Cade? I'm doing well, very well. Bron, I um, <sighs> feel like I can take a breath. We're on air now. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> it's been busy just getting here. It's been a busy morning indeed. Hey, uh, Tim Thorpe's had a very busy morning as well. Thank you so much, Tim, for um, Vital Bits. Thank you, Retro Andrew, for Retro Soulful Bits. And um, thank you so much to uh, Namilla for her wonderful chat with Uncle. And thank you, Uncle, as well. So um, wonderful to have you both with us. Uh, we'll have a little bit of news and weather for you in just a moment, but I'll just do a quick rundown of our program. It's funny how these things work out. We, um, we had all sorts of... Um, all sorts of ideas about yep. what we might do for today's program. And uh, what we've ended up with is a program of what we call charismatic megafauna. And um, this is something that particularly for those of us who've spent a lot of time studying invertebrates and, you know, the smaller creatures and um, smaller scale things that go on in the ocean, the charism- what we call charismatic megafauna, you know, tend to be the animals that get... Uh, get a lot of the publicity so your whales and your dolphins and your seals in particular so we've ended up with a charismatic megafauna program today which is fine i think part of the reason that they're considered charismatic char- i can't even say it. charismatic bron is the fact that they make noise and they talk which is something a lot of fish do and 
not quite sure aware of it in vertebrates as far as for communication, but that is something that sort of, I guess, gives them that charismatic sort of quality. So, And that's what we'll be concentrating a bit on today is the ways they communicate and some of those noises and some of the talking that goes on underwater. Mm. So first up, we'll be, um, this is an interview that I actually recorded on Thursday with Beck Wellard. She's a, um, I was going to say PhD candidate, which is uh, how, how she was presented through um, some media release that came out through Curtin University. She's actually submitted now. Um, so anyway, she's done her PhD on a fascinating new line of cetacean communication research, as you're saying, Kate, bioacoustics of orcas in Australian waters. And so she's been working with Project Orca. Orca um, uh, actually stands for Orca Research and Conservation Australia to kickstart this whole new field of research. Um, because it's interesting, despite decades of research, first um, first uh, recording of a cetacean underwater actually happened in the 1950s by accident. It was to do with some um, testing for uh, the presence of Russian subs, I believe, by, by the US Navy. And they came across these really weird sounds and thought it was interference, couldn't work out what it was, and it turned out to be whales. Um, and then what that's then kick-started basically 70 years of research into communication patterns of whales and dolphins. But we don't know much about orcas. Which is, I guess, given a bit of a surprise given that they're sort of found all throughout the world. And, you know, those um, listening stations that they put out for the various uh, world wars were actually, as you said, that was where they were accidentally sort of discovered these sounds. But I think they were just testing for background noise to try and work out where other subs were and part of that is actually sort of understanding what noises are down there first so that's what sort of kick-started and it's only been I think since early 2000s I remember doing a segment on this that this study of noise underwater is really starting to take off and also just the idea that it's having an impact in the role that human influence plays on that sound and which leads in perfectly to the next guest that we will have. Well we're actually going to have one between so we're going to catch up with Dave Donnelly as well from um, Dolphin Research Institute and Killer Whales Australia. Not so much about the uh, acoustics, bioacoustics of, um, of cetaceans, but actually just to talk about the latest sightings of humpbacks and southern rice, because whale watching has started. That's right. So it didn't lead in perfectly. It kind of <laughs> led in if I had had my timing right. To, so after Dave, we'll have uh, uh, Dr. Kate Robb from the Marine Mammal Foundation, which is based here in Victoria, down near sort of Port Phillip Bay talking about some data that she was fortuitously, fortuitously I'm struggling today fortuitously. thank you able to collect during the lockdown phase of um, during COVID when basically the waters would have gone quite silent so she had listening stations which she'll tell us what they were about out in the lead up to the lockdown and then we had six weeks where there were no recreational vessels on the water and also sort of shipping and everything slowed down and so she's actually got some data during that quiet time which is a rarity and I think a lot of the best science that we tend to find comes from these opportunistic events when someone happens to be sampling before a bushfire comes through or a flood or something so you have this before data and then you look at how these systems sort of operate during and then after so we're going to talk to her about the some of the data that she's got and um follow up keep in touch with her because i don't think she's started on it yet there's quite a bit to get through fantastic really can't wait for that um and then to close the show um neil blake is coming in uh he's going to bring us a new angle on the introduced pest species of uh, the northern pacific sea star the charismatic northern pacific sea star well i figured that neil is our own example of charismatic megafauna so it's, he brings it with him <laughs> yeah, he does 
Um, now, I believe you have um, a little bit of weather forecasting there, Kate. Yep. So first up, I'll start with the tides. So at Port Phillip Heads, we've got a low tide at 11 o'clock, so in a couple of hours, followed by a high tide at sort of 6 o'clock this evening. The weather for the rest of the day is basically going to be sort of north-northwesterly winds. Uh, they're going to be reasonably light, so good time to hit sort of the back beach type of areas. Um, and a top of 13 degrees, oh, top of 17 today, and it's 13 at the moment. And then tomorrow it's going to be nice in the morning with I think sort of northerlies again, and then it's a top of 14, and then it's going to turn a bit ugly for a few days as far as if you're wanting to hit the water. Really strong southwesterlies for a couple of days. So Tuesday, top of 15, some rain. 14 went some rain. Thursday, 14, maybe some rain. Friday, 15. Again, maybe some rain. And then <laughs> Saturday, much the same. Just, I should have just said, yeah, <laughs> it's going to be a bit of rain over the next week. But look, don't let that discourage you. Keep an eye on the winds more than the rain. I mean, especially if you're out in the water, you're going to get wet anyway. It's the winds that sort of, you know, um, discern where you're going. And yep. then just a quick surf report. Apparently, it's been Groundhog Day since Tuesday. Two foot plus straight sets offshore in the morning. Probably best bets over on the surf coast, given it's a northwesterly wind. Um, sort of be a bit cross shore on that sort of morning to peninsula side, but there are some spots where you can get a wave. Uh, get out there. Great conditions. A couple of foot, especially if you haven't been out in the water for a while since lockdown, it's a good time to get hit the water. Nice. Now, speaking of getting out in the water, I believe you have a little report on um, our, our wonderful friends, the spider crabs. Yeah, I do. It's sort of it's a bit hard to avoid if you jump on any social media. The uh, the crabs are starting to appear and aggregate in Port Phillip Bay. Now, I, I listened to the show, the podcast actually. So thanks for putting that together, Ken. I listened to the podcast of last week's show, just recently, just a couple of days ago, and heard of Dallas De Silva on talking about the spider crabs and the aggregation, and they're starting to show up. And they've actually been around for a little while. I've seen some footage probably over a month or so ago. Um, Radio Marinara's own Brett Illingworth has been posting stuff online, I think taunting people as probably Brett's way. Oh, that wouldn't be like Brett. No, not at all. Uh, saying they're out there, you just have to go and find them. Uh, but <laughs> they have been seen recently around Rye Pier, sort of off the pier. There's a lot of footage coming through. They haven't molted yet, but they're starting to aggregate in sort of big numbers. So that's pretty exciting and it's a pretty amazing thing to see. And you can kind of... you can sense the the joy that people have posting these photos and these images and then there's a lot of conversation around I've got to get myself down there I've got to get myself down there so I'm guessing somewhere like Rye Pier might be a bit busy but you know get out there and have a look um, I know Matt MacArthur is also another friend of Triple R's been posting some footage in the lead up to this aggregation being spotted in other locations so if you've got a bit of time I think a stand-up paddleboard or a kayak or something like that paddle around until you see the the seafloor move underneath you and then jump in and have a look you don't always have to hit up the piers but at the moment rise quite reliable but yeah pretty exciting and we'll, we're going to be keeping an eye on this as it goes on over the next couple of months it's such a comforting thing that they're here there's just so much bad news at the moment and just to know that those spider crabs are just back there's something really comforting about it don't you think it has become something that the dive community it's 
have not, I wouldn't say set their watch by, but it's a calendar event. It's something yeah. that they look forward to every year. Summer sort of comes and goes and then it's starting to cool off and everyone's like, oh, it's, the water's getting cold. But it's like, oh, it doesn't matter. The spider crabs are coming. Mm. So it's a great way to help get you through winter and get you excited. Because I actually went out in the water yesterday. I was up near Sandringham and just jumped in for a quick snorkel. And yeah, there's not much going on. Fish life-wise, I think they're all frozen, either sitting in a cave, um, keeping themselves warm or huddled up, keeping themselves warm. Or, or they've moved to warmer waters because it's... Um, Pretty quiet out there on the fish front, but mm. lots of cool invertebrates out there. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. Pleasure. <laughs> 12 minutes <laughs> past nine. Very quick plug and then we're going to go to a track. Uh, Winter by the Sea, I made a massive um, butcher effort of trying to <laughs> work out how people could tune into this. This one's going to be a lot more straightforward. Um, so this is uh, one of t- three events taking place in June, Winter by the Sea, which is um, a collaborative effort between Parks Victoria and Coast Care Victoria to, I guess, extend that concept of summer by the sea into winter and have all sorts of great things happen that you can tune into online. Uh, so this is happening uh, 4.30 till 5.15 this coming Tuesday, the 2nd of June. Um, John Arnold will be presenting... Um, um, a, a, a topic of monitoring marine wildlife. So we've already put the links to all the Winter by the Sea programs on our website. Um, we can do that again for you or you can just go to our Facebook page and uh, and have a look. Yeah, and it's, it's worth tuning in to John. He's got some fascinating stories. I, I know a couple that are going to be coming up and I won't tell you what they are, but some amazing migrations and mo- amazing travels that they've been able to document just using really cool technology. And John knows a lot about just about everything so he's a great person to hit up in the chat section and ask lots of questions because he'll have answers for you fantastic project orca or orca research and conservation australia is a multidisciplinary program that's been set up to investigate the distribution abundance bioacoustics and population dynamics of killer whales in australian waters with its headquarters at the Centre for Marine Science and Technology at Curtin University in Perth, it's intended that results from this research will assist our understanding of the population status of orcas in Australia. Beck Wellard is a PhD candidate at Curtin University and is dedicating her research to understanding the bioacoustics of orcas, their vocalisations, including the clicks, pulses and whistles. To tell us all about this research, it's with great pleasure we cross to Perth to speak with Beck Wellard. Good morning, Beck. Welcome to Radio Marinara and to Triple R. Thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you with us. Let's start with a question most people are pondering. How did you end up with arguably the most enviable PhD research project on the planet? <laughs> well, actually, it came around as surprise. Not the exact way that everyone would think. I actually started out researching acoustics in black swans in Ballarat in huh. Victoria and I fell in love with how animals communicate and the mechanics and cognitive thinking behind that. And then combining that with my love of the ocean, I started on a path towards understanding marine mammal acoustics. And uh, I never actually ventured out to study killer whales, but I wanted to do a PhD that nobody knew anything about. Uh, I like a chat off the southwest coast of these killer whales that were aggregating every year. I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. Well, yeah. <laughs> How did you pitch yourself forward for that? Because your field of research is probably what most people think of, not specifically bioacoustics, but going out there and studying cetaceans. When people think about, you know, they hear the title marine biologist, most people probably think, oh, yeah, you get to go out and, you know, study dolphins and whales. How did you pitch yourself for that? And I guess that's coming back to my first question because I imagine it would be a fairly highly sought-after field. It is, it is. And you're exactly right. When people say biologist, I don't use that term, but when people do say that, they immediately think you're out there on a on a boat hugging dolphins. So one of the main things to make sure 
I'm clear about is when I'm pitching it is that I am a scientist and I'm not out there to be fluffy and, and I'm here to do the hard yards. So it is really competitive and it's quite a stigma that you can get attached to when you do marine mammal science. It's interesting what you say and, and you're absolutely right. And the, the only people who don't call themselves marine biologists are marine biologists. <laughs> That's exactly true. I refuse to use that. When I went forward with this idea, I went to my the director of my lab now and, and pitched her the idea and I had my I's dotted and my T's crossed and I had the right experience in the huge undertaking and the fact that I had no background or baseline data to fall back on if I couldn't reach my goals. And uh, yeah, that's a challenge in everyone's PhD, I'm sure, but it's super hard when as soon as you add water to the element of a scientific study, it just becomes equal, especially with, you know, a highly mobile animal as well. And starting with a blank canvas, despite having the experience that you have with actually researching, testing, analysing acoustics of a completely different type of animal altogether, but starting with that blank canvas and stepping into the unknown, that must have been quite a moment for you when you actually signed it. Yeah, I think I was pretty naive, to be honest. So I think my ignorance put me in a good spot. Uh, it was halfway through when uh, I went to had my other fields on the West Coast and I spent three years trying to get these kilowatt to my hydrophone. It was off the Ningaloo Reef. And after three field seasons, I still came back with no data. So that was about two chapters of my PhD that I had to rethink and restructure. And it actually, for me though, so fat, I was able to build more collective going back to the Ningaloo. I went to Antarctica. So <laughs> went from one warm, beautiful reef place, the cold polar climate, but that actually helped me extend my PhD and also extend my network and my research focus as well. Can we go to the technical side of it? How do yeah. you assess orca sounds and their patterns? So we've been, we know that people have been assessing and analysing the vocalisations of humpback whales since the 1950s. How, how do you approach orcas? Is it similar to how you would approach uh, dolphins rather than whales? Well, it really depends what the, so the methodology is similar. So you can use different pieces of equipment to capture the sound. But the analysis is going to be different to what you're asking. So my main question was, how do the Australian and the Antarctic kilowell sound? Can we detect them by just listening to them? Uh, do they sound different to other populations as well? So the technical of it, I would analyse their call structure and look at different parameters of their call. So for, for the kilowells, I use their social sounds that they use and the burst pulse sounds. As you mentioned at the start, the third type is echolocation. It's more for navigating and foraging. But Kilowell populations around the world have this unique dialect and it can be dialect just for a group or a geographical region. And the dialect uh, that is unique is made up of whistles and burst pulse sounds. So that's the two vocalizations that I studied. And I looked at different parameters. So I would look at their duration, how low in frequency, how high in frequency, where most of the energy would be spent in the call, and then complex well. So I found that the type C killer whales in Antarctica, the fish eaters, have these really complex calls and it went to the Bremer killer whales here in Australia that I've recorded who had really, really simple calls. And I think in part that is to do with their diet, the type C's each, and the Bremer ones over here eat fish, squid, but they also eat marine mammals. So you don't want your prey to detect you. Simpler and easier for you to be very basic in your communication to each other. Oh, wow. But I'm going off on a tangent and I'm probably going to soak up your time just explaining that. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's exactly what we're interested in more about. And particularly about the frequency of the orc calls. So you're looking at kilohertz and the lengths of the calls and different types of calls and vocalisations in uh, relation to 
social behaviour and that sort of thing as well. Can you take us through some of that research? Yeah, so the frequency range of the Australian kilowatts in the Antarctic are well within the range of others around the world, already of where the kilohertz is spent, and that falls in with the rest around the world. But the complexity was what I found interesting. So C1s I found to have these multiple component calls, and they also had these bifurnations where they're emitting two sounds at the same time. And we're looking at it thinking, how on earth are these animals are consistently doing it? It's like us humming at the same time. Like, how are they making these two sounds at the same time? See, they have a meaning. They had all of that through their repertoire. Bremer ones were really simple, so a little bit different to that. With the social behaviour, it's really hard to assiduals because, you know, killer whales, they swim quite close within each other. So you have to assign their vocalisations to a showing. So with the types, these guys live in the Ross Sea ice shelf in the summer and they're kind of poking their heads up out of these breathing holes and then coming back down. And then sometimes the ice shelf shifts and change. So their breathing holes actually close up. So they need to communicate quite a lot. So these guys were nonstop chatter and... I think, A, in part, it's, you know, a social structure that they have down there that they need to communicate with each other and let the young ones know where they are, what they're doing, where their next breathing hole is, and also where the fish is as well. And they can talk until the cows come home because those fish aren't really susceptible to those higher frequency sounds of hearing them. Whereas where I was saying here of the Ningaloo, where I was trying to get those acoustics for three years, those killer whales predate predominantly on humpback whale calves. Oh, so wow. those calves are can well with here within the region that those killer whales are talking. So it makes sense to me that they're not going to be chatty too much before they try find that calf to kill it. So my thoughts on the side is that they thought they would be super vocal, which is what I've seen after a kill. They get super excited. They chat amongst each other. They have a feast. And I thought they would be doing that off the Ningaloo Reef, but they're not. I think that's because the humpback whales show altruistic behaviour. So there's these escorts, these male escorts that will come in if they hear killer whales attacking calf. No genetic relatedness at all we've found. And they'll be coming in to try fend off the killer whales. They just have no time for killer whales. So I think the killer whales, even if they're excited in their feeding, they still have to maintain their quietness or an escort's going to come in. And the escorts have even come in when the calf is dead just to fight the killer whales off to protect their own kind. That's amazing. Are you heading back to Ningaloo back to extend this research and have another crack at recording their vocalisations? Sure am. So I'm waiting for the borders to open up. They've just opened up the regional borders uh, this week, so I'll be able to head back up the site for the winter. So the killer whale population up there is different to other killer whale populations around Australia. We haven't had a match. And these ones are just west, and they're there a lot during the winter, which coincides with the austral winter migration of the humpbacks. So I'll try to get up there this July, August, and uh, I try to get more research from from those killers. <laughs> we, we very occasionally get them coming past Western Port here, sort of reasonably close to Melbourne, and in southern right whales are relatively common. Dave Donnelly from Killer Whales Australia was just telling me today that they're up to whale sighting number 20. It's got, already gone up from 1 to 20 in about a week and a half for this current season, but it always provokes a, a massive wave of excitement whenever um, an orca sighting happens. As I know Dave really well. The Killer Whale sighting caught in when we were in Victoria together. I was originally from Victoria, and we went out all day on the boat looking for them but we couldn't find them and then yeah so I originally grew up in Melbourne on Port Phillip Bay studying the dolphins there back in 2004 or five with Dave actually oh, right. and then the killer whales are the numbers are over here and they've got reliable sightings here on the west coast so I moved for the whales <laughs> 
Fan. We're going to have Dave on the program um, to give us an update on whale watching uh, at about 9.25 this morning. So we'll, we'll say hi to him from you. Oh, brilliant. Hi, Dave. Where can people go for more information? on And how far through are your PhD? So I submitted my PhD. Um, I've done my just tying off the uh, the red tape now. The questions have obviously stopped because of COVID-19. But look, I'll happily graduate at home with a bottle of champagne if that needs to be. So, uh, yeah, I've finished off there. And if people continue following, our, they can start Project Orca on Facebook and Instagram uh, and Twitter and YouTube as well. We put some videos up there, amazing encounters we have with the killers here on the on the West Coast. Thanks so much for speaking with us and good luck with your research and uh, hope to catch up with you again sometime in the future. Oh, thanks so much, Bron. I hope I get to come back on. I'll give you guys an update after my next field season. Yeah, please <laughs> do. That would be great. Okay. Cheers, Thank you. We've been speaking well uh, about bioacoustics of orcas. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. 9.30 and you're on Radio Marinara here on 3 Triple R. And uh, that was just an interview, if you've just tuned in, um, which uh, I recorded with Beck Wellard over in Curtin University. A few little skips happening with the recording there. Not really sure what was going on there, but um, anyway... There you go. That was our chat. And um, thanks very much to Elizabeth McCarthy who came in, arranged the whole interview and, uh, and panel for us as well. Okay, I think without further ado, we're now going to cross to Dave Donnelly uh, from Killer Whales Australia and the Dolphin Research Institute. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bron, and good morning, Kate. How hey, are we today? We're doing well, Dave. What's going on? Where are you? I've got my words together this morning, Cade. That's uh, uh, a good uh, start. Yeah, <laughs> I was. Uh, I did say before, I'm not speeching well today. <laughs> oh, that's that, that's uh, that's a shame, mate. That's a shame. No, we're doing very well. We're very busy at the moment here, uh, sorting out what's been going on with whales along our coastline in recent uh, couple of weeks, and uh, it's all very exciting stuff. Um, what's when we uh, caught up with you a couple of weeks ago, Dave? There uh, had been one dolphin sighting, or a whale, sorry, whale sighting, and um, that seemed to jump from one to twenty really quickly. It certainly did, Ron. And uh, what we can say about that is that it also coincided with the um, uh, the lifting of restrictions of COVID nineteen. So more people had ventured out. It just so happened on the very first day that we were allowed out. There happened to be whales there and, and red boats saw one and so did a, a, another individual. But since then, more and more people have been going out. Um, that's part of the reason why we've got more sightings, I think, but also because what we do believe is there's been what we call a pulse of whales. So humpback whales often travel when on migration in, uh, in what some people describe as pulses. And we think a small pulse might have come through last weekend. So... People are out diving with crabs and then they're flipping over to the back beach and sighting whales for you. Is that how it's working, Dave? It's not a bad place to be in Victoria and Port Phillip, uh, Mornington Peninsula coastline, is it? No, it's <laughs> it's great. It's I have seen people that have been out diving um, in the morning with the crabs and then they'll actually flip over to the other side with their binoculars and sit there on the headland and probably have their coffee and sort of try and find themselves some whales. Um, are you, do you... Well, sorry. I am struggling today, aren't I? <laughs> is this linking up with sort of sightings from other states? Uh, it certainly is, Kate. And just to reflect on what you just said, um, back in 2007, I was working with a film crew filming the crabs around uh, Tutkarook. And we took the boat out through the heads as well because we had a report of whales and we found two feeding blue whales out there, uh, about all about three miles off the uh, Portfield Heads. Um, anyway, that's another story. But, um, yeah, it, it does coincide with uh, other sightings. Typically um, in Victoria, particularly in the Two Bays region, we see our sightings start to 
start to steam up about three weeks after Sydney, um, and and Sydney's about a week or two behind Queensland, so it sort of backs up from the top of the bottleneck back down to the south. And uh, and for us, we're a little bit earlier this year than we have been, and a little bit sooner than Sydney. Um, with their consistent sightings. Um, our first sighting this year, uh, sorry, this season was the 16th of May uh, as opposed to the 22nd of May last year. So about a week ahead of where we were last year. Um, hopefully we go for a week longer as well. It'd be really nice. Dave, we've just played an interview which uh, I recorded during the week with Beck Wellard over at Curtin University. Um, I understand, yes. and she sends a shout out to you. I don't know if you heard it. Um, I did catch that. Yes. So we're talking about orcas, and um, I'm just wondering about our orca sightings because we do get them occasionally. Do they tend to happen later in the season? Um, typically around July, we, we tend to get a sighting or two around Phillip Island region and into um, Western Port. Um, also, December through February is not a bad time. But I wouldn't necessarily call it a season because, as Beck said in her interview, these are highly mobile animals. And, and for her to go to Western Australia to study the animals means that they must be pretty hard to study here on their home turf. And that's true, they are. They're really mobile. So spending an hour and like hours or possibly a day or two at the most in any location so uh, uh, as far as seasonality yeah roughly um, we get a winter run and a, and a summer run but they can show up pretty much any time and when we do see them they're largely the same animals that we see from one year to the next so really really interesting species and um, sadly we are not able to study them that well here without our citizen scientists but that's what makes it more fun but, uh, we're always keen to hear if people see them and um, of course people can use podwatch our, our, our sightings application to to report sightings of any whales and that's just at the dolphin research institute website at uh, dolphinresearch.org.au Fantastic. Dave, we'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks. Um, looking forward to having you on for a bit longer um, to talk some about the to talk about some of the research going on um, with the groups that you're associated with. If our listeners want to, I guess, find out more, where's the best place that they can go in the meantime? Uh, if they'd like to find out more about what's happening with whales along our coastline right now, our Facebook page is the most the closest to real-time information. So Facebook page is uh, Two Bays Whale Project, um, otherwise the Dolphin Research Institute website for reporting sightings. Um, we've got some great projects starting up, including a dedicated um, uh, time bin study, if you like, to look at uh, how much effort people are putting in and how many whales so we can start building an estimate of the, uh, the numbers of animals coming through. So we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Dave. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me on. Have a great day and good luck with your speech today. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dave. All the best, my friend. Cheers, mate. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye for now. Dave Donnelly there from uh, Kill Wales Australia and Dolphin Research Institute. And left with a backhanded compliment. Yeah, nice. <laughs> yeah. All right, 9.36, this is Radio Marinara. And in just a moment, we'll be speaking with Kate Charlton-Rob about some amazing research she's been doing, actually listening to um, the sounds being made by Bunner and Dolphins um, during the six weeks when there weren't any recreational boats out there on the water. So really interesting to find out what she's been doing. In the meantime... I missed it, Bron, so it's fine. Oh, so good. look, before we get to our next guest, I've got a quick question for you, Bron. Mm -hmm. How much money do you think you would have if every time you mentioned that you worked in marine science or when you were studying marine science, um, someone said to you, I wanted to do that because I love dolphins. Uh, yeah, I yeah, I wouldn't have money problems. Yeah, I like <laughs> I would say I'd probably have enough for like a crate of wine or something yep. like that. So our next guest would probably have enough to buy a vineyard, if not probably all of Yarra Valley. <laughs> because it's Dr. Kate Robb 
on the line. She spent nearly 20 years studying dolphins, so she would have heard this quite a bit. She's described a new species of dolphin, the Baranen dolphin, which was found right under our nose in Port Phillip Bay in Gippsland Lakes. And she's also the founding director, head of research, basically the Grand Poobah. She started it, so <laughs> she could call herself whatever she likes, of the Marine Mammal Foundation. Welcome back to Triple R, Kate. Well, thanks for having me. What a, what a very nice uh, introduction that was. <laughs> so would you have enough for a vineyard? Um, well, I probably would have enough for a vineyard, but uh, for, for the amount of people that love dolphins, which is great, and they are charismatic megafauna, but um, I guess the other thing is is that they are an umbrella species. So if we go about conserving these top-order predators in the system, then, you know, it has that, that slow-down effect to, con- to conserve the whole environment that they call home. You've practiced that one. That was a fantastic response. Now, I actually just wanted to stick on this because I wanted to know, did you ever say that to anyone when you were young? Um, well, I actually had a complete change in uh, career. So I um, was a graphic designer and worked in post-production uh, for my first career. And then I went back to uh, study science as, a, as, I guess, a mature age student and then went all the way through to my PhD in one go. So I grew up on the Mornington Peninsula, loving the beach. I spent all my summers down there. Um, and, yeah, that, that passion stayed with me and I started diving. And so I did a complete... Complete, uh, career switch up. It's fantastic and actually one of the things you're saying like living down the peninsula and as a kid sort of spending a lot of time there you know the um, Marine Mammal Foundation actually provides ways for people I guess like yourself when you're a kid but for sort of younger generation that do actually have that love of dolphins and you know the marine mammals conservation the environment to get involved can you tell us a little bit about your marine champions program I just sort of was went down a rabbit hole last night and started seeing that and I imagine it's fantastic for kids. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And and one of the best things about our Marine Champions program is that it gives them that hands-on opportunity. So we get out into the field, we go stalking, we go stand-up paddleboarding. But we also learn, um, you know, about whale evolution and we learn about pinniped evolution and about the environment. Um, And they're also fantastic because they want to make a difference. So they're coming up with their own campaigns within their schools to be able to, you know, make that difference in the amount of, you know, for instance, marine litter out there in the environment. Um, And the other really amazing thing about our marine champions is that it brings together these kids that can somewhat be you know we always give presentations and there's the teacher that says oh we've got this you know student that's so passionate about it you know how can they get involved and it brings together all of these really passionate young people um, and they sort of find others like them and it's really it's really cool to watch and I imagine you've been moving that sort of online given what's been happening but it's still continuing yeah, no, we've been running um, we've been running our sessions, our marine champion sessions online. So we've been doing the same sort of platform, and we gave them research projects so they could go and explore anything that they wanted to and present it to the rest of the marine champions. We've got a homework club, so we check in with them every week, and and a lot of the time that's just you know showing off their their you know COVID puppies and their kittens and talking about school. But it just gives them a connection point when when it can be so socially distancing. You know, they they get to go online twice a week and and have a chat with their friends essentially Um, and we bring it back to what they're doing in the environment and what they want to do but it's yeah it's really a great little program. All right so for people that are interested just go to the Marine Mammal Foundation webpage and it's Marine Champions. Now let's move on to the bit that we've got you here for Kate. You've had underwater listening stations out in Port Phillip, is it Port Phillip Bay and Gippsland Lakes? 
Yeah, we've had these um, passive acoustic monitoring stations out in both of the locations where we have our resident Burrinan dolphins. Um, and they were essentially just to record the soundscape, so the marine noise that's going on in these environments. And, and both of them are very different. You know, you've got a full estuarine system um, versus, you know, Australia's biggest shipping port with um, both of those having recreational boating. So the idea of the research was to not only be able to eavesdrop on the dolphins in the air Area, but also to have a look at the impact of this marine noise. Um, and so they've been out there for quite some time and it was just, as you said, uh, quite fortuitous that, um, you know, we're probably and hopefully never going to have another time where the whole world is essentially in lockdown um, and this marine soundscape completely changes. Just before we get onto that, I just wanted to, can you tell people what a listening station is? Like how big is it? Where do you put it? How much can it hear? Do you have to have lots of these to hear underwater? What's the setup with it? Like how does this actually work? What are, what are we looking at? So they're called sound traps. So they're sort of, I guess, palm-sized devices that we set up down and they're, they're um, on the bottom of the ocean. So we, we drop the device down um, and they record five minutes in every 20, 24 hours a day for months at a time before we have to go and collect them again. So it's basically this little, you know, as I said, underwater eavesdropping device um, called the sound traps that, that collects this data passively. Kate, how do you know where to put them? Is it based on um, other sort of sampling that you've done? Yeah, so we've got them in um, places where we, uh, you know, know that there's um, high productivity, uh, that we have our, our sightings. So we do research across the entire bay and, of course, across the lakes as well. So uh, we have a good understanding of where these dolphins, and these dolphins are using the entire system. Um, so we've put them out and in places where we know that there's, um, you know, this underwater noise, but equally um, that it's consistent. So they're dropped in the same place all the time so we have that replicability with our research um so yeah it's based on where we we're sending the dolphins but also within the survey areas that we do so we do dedicated um boat-based line transects in across the bay so we want to be able to have an understanding of the dolphin movement patterns but we also as you discussed with beck match those with the behaviors that they're doing so when we're collecting um the the acoustics on the boat we can match those against the behaviour and then with these passive um, stations that we have, we can then match the sounds that we're hearing across the day and the night to try and extrapolate what they're actually doing. You know, are they having a, a nice little munch on some fish at two o'clock in the morning? You know, uh, those sorts of things we've never been able to do before. I was going to put you on the spot here. What sort of sounds do they make and what are your dolphin mimicking skills like? Like, do, do they sound different when they're feeding as opposed to mating? Like, what are some of the differences that you're picking up or is it um, something you need a trained ear to hear? Um, yeah, no, though, I... I Come on, Kate. I actually got... <laughs> They, um, they make a whole bunch of different noises. So sometimes they can sound like chirping birds. Sometimes they can sound like, I can't whistle actually, so it's not going to come across. You know, that they sort of, <laughs> and then um, you can hear clicks and buzzes. Sometimes it sounds like there's a whole bunch of nanas just chattering under the water. And um, you, my, my PhD researcher, Rachel, who's come on board and, and is, 
you know, leading the charge on this research. Uh, she <laughs> can often hear my transcribing where I'm trying to mimic those sounds and, and say what, you know, what time in the recording that they were making those sounds. And she does like to play those back to me so that I can get a, a giggle afterwards. So going back to these listening stations that you've got out there, I actually did the math. So you said five minutes every 20, which is 15 minutes every hour, which is six hours a day, which is 2,190 hours a year, which is basically 90 days of 24 hours worth of data. How the hell do you analyse this? Because surely you don't have the time to listen to this. No, it's a huge amount of data. So, you know, we get, you know, eight, we could get up to 18,000 files, um, you know, per per um, sort of period times by all of the soundtracks that we have out there. So fortunately, we've been able to explore um, sort of some machine learning programs that you can put those in um, and you essentially download the, the files into there and this program works 24 hours a day, the same as the soundtracks do in in assessing and pulling out these sounds. Um, and we've been able to, you know, work with this program and train this program to be able to pull out the noises that we want. And then we go through and ground truth those. So we, you know, randomly go through these files and say, okay, is this program pulling out the sounds that we need? And we can also then have a look at um, the, the noise from vessels as well in that. So, you know, it, this program is, you know, it's really innovative um, um, the research that we're doing is, is like I'm really proud of and we're getting so much information. Again, like listening to these dolphins at 2 o'clock in the morning when we can't be out there or on really rough days like we've got at the moment with high winds when we can't be there, we're still able to continue um, to collect the data. And, and when we're all in lockdown as well, you know, we're all closed up in our houses and, uh, and these, the, the research is still continuing. We're going to have to get you back once you get that machine to do all that learning and spit out all that data and give us a sort of a fill-in as to what actually happened during those periods of silence. And I know we're actually going to have you back on the 28th of June uh, to yep. talk about the complex social structures and the use of drone, drones in the research. However, before we go, can you just give us a quick... I guess a quick reminder of the rules and regulations around seeing dolphins because everyone gets excited and now they're back out on the water and every time you see a dolphin, boats sort of tend to gravitate towards them. Can you just give us a quick rundown before we go of what those rules are? Yeah, that's a really important um, point, and we are seeing, you know, when as soon as those restrictions lifted, we were we were uh, we've been able to continue our research under special, um, you know, authorizations. But uh, yeah, there's a lot more boats out there, and uh, so the boats, both powered and unpowered, are not to approach dolphins within 100 meters, um, and jet skis within 300 meters. So a lot of the time, um, you know, we see uh, boats directly approaching and zigzagging over and doing U-turns back over them. Um, and that takes away the choice of these animals. So these are wild animals. They're endangered species, and we really need to be um, looking after them. We have a number of dolphins in our population that actually have recovered boat strike wounds on them. So, you know, the, the thought of, oh, well, they'll just get out of my way, you know, in some cases they don't, and the dolphin comes off second best. So it's really important to not approach the dolphins or let them approach you if they want to and in that way you're probably going to get a better interaction anyway with them coming over to the bow ride if they choose to and they'll check you out as much as you're checking them out fantastic look thank you kate we will catch up with you again on the 28th appreciate your time and um have fun out on the water doing what most kids dream of doing we'll talk to you soon <laughs> cheers thanks for having me bye thanks kate that was great it's yeah there's so much more to talk about
Can't, so, can't wait to hear the results from that analysis as well. Yeah, and I was very curious as to how you, the hell you go about doing it. So it'd be interesting to sort of learn a little bit more about that machine learning side of thing because it's becoming such a big part of it. All right, today's show on Radio Marinara has all been about charismatic megafauna. So we're going to finish up with our our very own and our best example of charismatic megafauna, our baykeeper, Neil Blake. Good morning, Neil. Good morning. How are you? That's a big wrap. <laughs> Look, yeah, you you are our charismatic mega fauna um, species specimen, and um, you're bringing it back to uh, the charismatic charismatic. <laughs> it's contagious. <laughs> charismatic. Um, oh, sea stars. Let's go. <laughs> I've run out of words too. Northern Pacific sea star. A new angle on them. Yeah, that's right. They're in, uh, they've been around since '95 in the bay, and you know, um, uh, there doesn't seem to be, have been, to my understanding, a great deal of study into their impacts. Uh, and you know, so the uh, the focus really, from the, the management point of view, is to try to prevent their spread into other waterways. So you know, by washing down boat trailers, etc. But um, other than perhaps some studies on how they might affect the aquaculture industry, uh, there hasn't really been much attention paid to um, the wider ecology of the bay and their potential impacts there. So uh, I love a too-hard basket. I just dive right in. And (laughs) and the the Northern Pacific Sea Stars have been in St Kilda Harbour and they come in there every winter when it gets cooler about the water temperatures uh, to spawn. That's, that's our understanding. And um, Earthcare has been uh, doing culls from the uh, harbour for well, probably over, well over 10 years now. And uh, it's sort of recognised that you're never going to get rid of them just by manual removal, but uh, it's still at least um, reducing their impacts on that local uh, spot. So... Um, one of the things that they did, they did a cull a couple of weeks ago and uh, there were all these bivalves that were in the catch bags that had been uh, abandoned by the uh, Northern Pacific Sea Star that they'd been in the process of consuming. So that was fascinating, really, to look at the, the species of bivalves that uh, um, were, were actually being attacked by the sea stars. And... Uh, yeah, so it sort of brought to mind the fact that um, with our shoreline shell surveys we've been doing in St Kilda for the past 10 years, we noticed a spike in bivalves being found on the beach in winter, which is when the uh, Northern Pacific sea stars were there. So uh, I'm planning to do a, uh, a series of uh, fortnightly seashell surveys in St Kilda uh, over the winter period, well, starting in uh, April, which I've done three so far, and going through to the end of July, just to uh, detect what if there are uh, any particular bivalves that are being found and uh, therefore being identified as likely prey of Northern Pacific sea stars. So that's so just a bit of a way to start more conversations about this pest and maybe we should be trying a little bit harder to... Uh, to manage their impacts. Yeah, and having a, a lateral look at what they might be consuming at the time that they're spawning and could be a really important key to actually understanding their ecology, Neil. That, that's right. Uh, and we, we haven't got much to lose, really, other than a bit of time, you know. Yep. <laughs> and let's face it, we've got to be down the beach, so that's not so bad, is it? In, uh, so, indeed. Uh, hey, and speaking yeah. of losing time, we've just lost all of ours. So we'll, we're going to let you go, Neil, but looking forward to having you back on in a couple of weeks and we can um, touch base on, on these surveys that you're doing. 
Yeah, well, a bit of a progress report. Okay, thanks for that then, Brian. Okay. <laughs> thanks, Neil. We'll catch you soon. Bye for now. And uh, that brings us to the end of Radio Marinara. We're already eating into the doctor's time with apologies to them. So thank you, Neil. Thanks to uh, Kate Robb and uh, Dave Donnelly from Dolphin Research Institute and Beck Wellard from Curtin University and Project Orca. Thank you, Brian. I've used up all my words for the day. So <laughs> thank you, Kate. <laughs> Enjoy the rest much. of the day. And thanks so much um, to Kent, who's been there here panelling for us, as he always does. Uh, on next week's program, Anthony will be in, as well as uh, Dr. Beach and Rex. So great show lined up for you again. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Have yourselves a wonderful Sunday, and we'll catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. Bye for now. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.